the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. We've got a lot of material to cover today and uh, hopefully you'll find the links and the parallels between what we're talking about today. What do wolves have to do with Africa? So I'm just going to jump right in here and um, start with some information, a little background and carry you through uh, some of the questions that we've asked in the uh, outline of what we're going to talk about today. On Thursday, December 6, 2012, 832F, Yellowstone's most famous wolf, was killed. She's the first wolf with an obituary in the New York Times and just and mentioned in just about every major newspaper and online resource. The wolf, known to the park's wolf researchers as 832F, was the alpha female leading the famous Lamar Canyon Pact, who helped us better understand the behavior of these important predators for all who followed her since she was born six years ago. The GPS data on the collar that she carried showed that she and her pack rarely went outside the boundaries of Yellowstone National Park, but this was one time too many, and she was shot and killed outside of the park the first week of December by a hunter in Wyoming. She was also the third and last of the Wolf Reintroduction Project's wolves outfitted with a specialized $4,000 GPS collar that collected data every 30 minutes, allowing the scientists to track her movements in fine detail. This GPS data is important to understanding the effects of wolves on the park's elk population, and uh, the the park's overall health. We don't have any wolves with these collars on them now. At least eight other Yellowstone wolves were shot in the two weeks of the sh- within the shooting of 832F. Wolves that wander outside Yellowstone's invisible boundary into Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming, where 832F strayed, are targeted by ranchers and hunters who want to protect their livestock and big game herds. Livestock and big game herds that also roam on our public lands and national forests. In any other year, things might have been fine. But wolf hunting has been allowed this year, this past year, 2012. The deaths of, have dismayed scientists to track the wolves, to study their habits, their population spread, and threats to their survival. Still, some found 832F's death to be particularly disheartening. 
So while we spend millions toward the legal battles and conservation of wolves and other large carnivores, such as getting the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list the African lion as endangered, we are also spending millions of dollars on policies to eradicate them. What drives these policies and who benefits? And this makes us wonder, where is Africa and her wildlife headed if she should follow the paths the West have taken? So now a little more in-depth information. Uh, a lot of people are wondering, how is this possible that a wolf could be killed? Um, uh, such a famous wolf, a collared wolf that's been tracked for so many years, and a highlight of the wolf reintroduction program, which is costing the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, the public millions of dollars. Wolf hunting is legal in Wyoming. This past fall in 2012, Wyoming allowed wolf hunting on lands bordering Yellowstone for the first time since the wolf's reintroduction. The state removed the wolves from the endangered species list this past September. September. The hunting season began on October 1st. The wolf, 832F, is the eighth and final wolf that hunters will be allowed to shoot there this year. Officials stated, elsewhere in Wyoming, wolves are classified as predators and can be shot on sight. A majority of the Yellowstone wolves killed outside the park had been collared by researchers. The collar on 832F showed that she spent 95% of her time inside the park. Another collared member of that pack, her friend 754, was shot in Wyoming in mid-November. Beyond the loss of the GPS data... The death of 832F affects the project's study in other ways, uh, wolf biologist Douglas Smith states. The project, which is partly funded by the U.S. National Science Foundation and also funded by federal dollars, the U.S. Forest Service, the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and under the Department of the uh, Interior, is designated to understand the natural life cycle of wolves unexploited by humans. But this season alone, hunters had shot seven wolves, including 832F, that primarily, primarily used the park and were part of the study. Wildlife defenders fear that the wolf population is not yet strong enough to withstand hunting, and the deaths have dismayed many who track the wolves to study their habits and population and better understanding of this apex predator and its impact on the health of our national park systems. Advocacy groups are petitioning Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho to set stricter regulations in the regions bordering Yellowstone to reduce the number of collared wolves killed by hunters. Many ranchers and hunters say the wolf hunts are a reasonable way to reduce attacks on livestock and protect big game populations. The hunting prowess and fecundity that made 832F a fan and a favorite also stirred a lot of animosity among the many people who want to see fewer wolves in the northern Rockies. Robert Fanning, co-founder of the group Friends of the Northern Yellowstone Elk Herd, which opposes wolf protections, said he knew one hunter who shot a popular wolf from Yellowstone and then boasted of the feat on his vanity license plates. Mr. Fanning said that empathizing with wolves because of their supposedly human traits compares unfavorably with what, quote-unquote, pagans did in ancient cultures. Gary Marbutt, 
president of the Montana Shooting Sports Association, likened the admiration for 832F to romanticizing a, quote, a psychotic predator stalking Central Park and slitting throats of unwary visitors. On the Monday afternoon following Wolf 832F's shooting, Montana's Fish and Wildlife Commissioners voted 4-1 to one in favor of halting wolf hunting and trapping in areas adjacent to Yellowstone National Park, in part because of this disproportionate harvest of collared park wolves. Most of the wolves shot in those areas wore research collars. Bob Ream, chairman of the Montana Fish and Wildlife Parks Commission, stated that they recognize that they put a lot of time, effort, and money into collaring wolves for the wolf, re- wolves for the wolf reintroduction project, and they want to see their re- research continue. Biologists say more than 80 wolves are still living in Yellowstone, a healthy population from the standpoint of species preservation, but that number is likely to drop as hunting and trapping continue outside the park. Last season, at least 87 wolves were shot in Montana, 120 were shot and trapped in Idaho, and 58 were shot in Wyoming. And this is after the reintroduction program of the Wolf Reintroductory Program of 1974, after they were extirpated in the early 1960s. Uh, excuse me, 1920s. So you might, if you're old enough, you might remember some of all this uh, brouhaha that was going on with the introduction of the wolves in Yellowstone. It's been a successful program, but there is a lot of animosity going on about introdu- introducing apex predators back into our ecosystems, especially our national parks that are bounded and bordered by federal lands, public lands, and private ranching lands, hunting concessions and uh, big money, and uh, big money can often drive policy, which we'll get into a little bit later. So, um, once again, quoting wildlife biologist Douglas Smith, because 832F was the alpha or breeding female of the Lamar Canyon pack, her death is also likely to have important social impacts on the park's wolves. Wolves in the park do attack and kill one another, and in some of these cases, the alpha female has died, in an event that can lead to the pack's breakup. 832F had joined with two brothers, 754M and 755M, to form the Lamar Canyon pack, and almost immediately began drawing attention to herself. She was probably the park's most famous wolf, very popular with wolf watchers because she was odd. Usually the males are the best hunters and the killers, but she went against the norms. She was the best hunter in her pack and was clearly in charge. She's killed many elk and ran roughshod over those two brothers. We are talking about one very successful wolf since she was born in 2006, which was also her other fond uh, nom de guerre, which was... And now she's gone. Wolves. They've been the bane of humans' existence since time immemorial. They've also been the foundation of the spirituality of the nature of wildness. The wolf, as well as the lion, exerts a powerful influence on human imagination. They both take your stare and turn it back to you. Without wolves, we wouldn't have our modern-day canine pets. 
Without wolves and our other top predators, the carnivores, our landscapes are deeply affected, not only the population and health of the predator's prey, but of the very ecosystem they both depend upon for sustenance, their habitat, the land, our land, our rivers and forests and mountains that they and we depend upon for the same reason, survival. Okay, you may be thinking, well, wolves don't live in the city like I do, or they don't need to have a job to get money to pay the bills like I do. What I'm hoping we'll come to truly understand is that in actuality, yes, they do. Wolves, lions, bears, our apex predators do have a job. They do live in a neighborhood populated with a variety of characters, some they like and some they don't. They do need to bring home the bacon for their families to survive. And in that survival, their community thrives, as all the other characters around provide the other incidental necessary services to that community. Just as our grocery stores, our gas stations, and our schools, and even our ethics and behavior provide for our social stability and survival. Often, when we think of wildlife, we think of it as beautiful, amazing, wild, but mostly far away. The polar bear, the African lion, the wolf, in faraway remote places that we may never see or be or have to survive in. We don't often think about wildlife and us until we meet the bear next door or the cheetah who has jumped on your car or the mountain lion who's taken your pet or the bear who got into your house, house or car and destroyed it. When you have to coexist with the biggest predators out there, successful strategies strategies for the other smaller niche predators is to blend in, get along, and hide, be stealthy. The black bear, the mountain lion, the smaller predators we see, the mesocarnivores, such as coyotes, foxes, badgers, and raccoons, do not seem to be quite the same threat, even when they're out at our front door or roosting in our attics. They don't carry quite the same fear factor as the large megafauna, the apex predators, the big, scary, hairy predators. On the whole, we enjoy seeing them on our nature walks, in our yards, and more and more as we build into what was once wilderness and is now sub-rural paradise for those who can afford it and wall it off. But even so, when we encounter wildlife during our habitual day, when it's close by and not far away in some distant land or TV documentary, we now often consider it vermin. It's a challenge, and our first action is usually to get rid of it. If it's not doing us any good, and it's not serving us any purpose, and it's competing for our resources, we've created policies to get rid of it. So the plight of the wolf is, in short, a parable for African wildlife conservation and the future of conserving our world's predators. So this leads us to um, what policies and uh, are, are in place to protect our wildlife. And the main part of that is the Endangered Species Act uh, and the Fish and Wildlife Coordination Act. The Endangered Species Act, ESA, and the Fish and Wildlife Coordination Act, FWCA, are major federal statutes designed to protect plant and animal resources from adverse effects due to development projects. Both acts require consultation with wildlife authorities before committing resources to certain types of projects. The purpose of the ESA, passed in 1973, to provide for the designation and protection of invertebrates, fish, 
wildlife, and plant species that are in danger of becoming extinct and conserves the ecosystem on which such species depends to protect and recover imperiled species and the ecosystems upon which they live. It is administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Commerce Department's National Marine Fishery Service, NMFS. The Act defines an endangered species as any species that is in danger of becoming extinct throughout all or a significant portion of its range. The Fish and Wildlife Service has primary responsibility for terrestrial and freshwater organisms, while the responsibilities of the National Marine and Fisheries Service are mainly marine wildlife, such as whales and andromans fish, such as salmon or sturgeon. To be protected, a species must be listed by the Secretary of the Interior as endangered or threatened. The listing process generally begins with a petition to the Secretary. Consultation with affected states is required prior to listing, but the Secretary makes the final decision. Whenever possible, a designation of critical habitat accompanies the listing of an endangered or threatened species. The Secretary must publish and periodically update these lists and development develop and implement recovery plans for the conservation and survival of endangered and threatened species. For the purposes of the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, Congress defines species to include subspecies, varieties, and for vertebrates, distinct population segments. When Congress passed the Endangered Species Act in 1973, it recognized our rich natural heritage is of, quote, aesthetic, ecological, educational, recreational, and scientific value to our nation and its people. It further expressed concern that many of our nation's native plants and animals were in danger of becoming extinct. So we'll get back into a little bit more of the depth of this and how it all works and the convoluted bureaucracy that may uh, get weighed down but is also there to protect our species. We'll be back after the break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World. As you can probably tell by now, I'm delving into some pretty deep information, so I hope you'll bear with me as I go through some facts and figures and government policies and outlines, because my hope is to help familiarize you with what it is that makes conservation happen, guides how conservation happens all over the world, and uh, in your backyard, my backyard, and even in uh, other countries. So bear with me as we go through some of these policies. And um, if you uh, have questions or want to join in on this conversation, please do call in at one 472 5788 Or you can send me an email at wildeyes, W-I-L-D-I-Z-E, at wildeyes.org. Also, be sure to check out our website, www.wildeyes.org, to find out more about what we do. You can join in our blog at our website and under our news and blog, where we post all our episodes and invite comments and discussion groups. We can follow us on Twitter and Facebook and in LinkedIn. And hopefully... Um, be prodded to become a guest on the show. We're always looking for interesting people to interview and uh, let us know what's going on in the world of conservation. So back to outlining how conservation policy works in the U.S. Under the U.S. government, the Department of the Interior, there is a partnership between four agencies, the Bureau of Land Management, the Forest Service, the National Park Service, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The I'm going to just lump all of these under the service. The service accepts unsolicited contributions from other governments, private organizations, and individuals. Once collected, these funds are used to support a variety of fish and wildlife conservation projects that contribute to the fulfillment of the Department of the Interior goals and the service's mission. Under these services, funds are appropriated appropriated for specific acts, and that's with a capital A, the Fish and Wildlife Service Coordination Act, which started the whole shebang um, back in the 1950s, which authorized the Secretary of the Interior to accept donations of land and contributed funds and furtherances the purpose of the act, the Fish and Wildlife Act of 1956, as amended and authorizes loans for commercial fishing vessels, investigations of fish and wildlife resources and crimes, and cooperation with other agency. There's the Land and Water Conservation Fund Act of 1965, the National Wildlife Refuge System, and the Volunteer and Community Partnership Act, and the National Fish Hatchery System Volunteer Act. All of these authorize the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to accept donations of funds, real and personal property, personal services, and facilities for the purpose of carrying out these acts, and further authorizes the service in cooperative agreements with nonprofit partner organizations, academic institutions, or state and local governments to construct, 
operate, maintain, or improve refuge facilities and services and to promote volunteer outreach and education programs. So that's a mouthful right there. Hopefully you, you followed me with that. So now a next logical question would be is where do these appropriated funds come from? The federal government, through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, administers three programs together which constitute the majority of federal funding for wildlife restoration efforts. The three programs are the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, that was created in 1937 under the Pittman-Robertson Act. The Federal Aid and Sport Fish Restoration Act, created in 1950, also known as the Dingle-Johnson Act. And the 1934 Migratory Bird Conservation Act, also known as the Duck Stamp Act. These employ similar mechanisms to fund wildlife conservation. Collectively, these programs are referred to as federal aid. This federal aid, which also includes hunting, fishing, and consumptive utilization licensing fees, including subsistence such as Native Americans and Inuit, Aboriginal and uh, Tribal Africa, it is all, but it is also the national parks that end up with the revenue more toward the non-consumptive utilization and aesthetics, such as wildlife and bird watching, recreation, but much of this funding goes into the budget of running the parks, not necessarily direct protection of the species, which is majority funded by wildlife marine NGOs, that's non-governmental organizations, or as we know them here, non-profits organizations, public charities or private foundations, with specific missions of focus garnered from both federal and private public funding. Your, that means your donations and your tax dollars. My donations, my tax dollars. That's where the money comes from into this big federal aid pie. There is also the Department of the Interior Fish and Wildlife to the Fish and Wildlife Division of Budget, which provides support to all Fish and Wildlife Service progress programs each step of the way in the budgetary process. The formulation, justification, coordination, and execution of the budget, the division directs and manages these processes by prescribing policies, procedures, and controls, while also ensuring compliance with the administration's objectives and conformance to the statutory authority. So I hope you caught that. The administration, that can change with each president, with each term when in when the politics and congress changes so it gets a little willy-nilly it can be weighed down it can be changed so nothing is set in stone here the wildlife division of but budget also um, has objectives to conform to statutory authority and uh, propose changes in appropriation structure and language. So we do have some protections there. It also participates in and coordinates budgetary determinations and reviews the proposals for supplementary requests and reprogramming of funds. The division reviews the status of obligations. That means what we've committed to in terms of Endangered Species Act and all the other programs under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Department of the Interior, and the expenditures to evaluate program progress and recommends adjustments for conformance to policy and economical use of financial resources. That's a big sentence right there, the economical use of financial resources. Somebody's making those decisions. And when it comes to our public dollars, we are a part of that process. So when you are on Facebook or on the Internet or watching TV and you see these petitions sign 
um, for this, you know, alert, have U.S. Fish and Wildlife list something such as the African lion. There is a big push of by uh, today is the deadline to uh, write letters to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list the African lion on the Endangered Species Act. It is threatened. Its population has declined by... Um, 80% over the past 50 years. We are in uh, dire um, straits of losing the African lion. Uh, there are 23,000 lions left across their former range in Africa. And of those 23,000, approximately 2,600 are male lions. Male lions are the breeders. They are also the ones that are sought after by trophy hunting and uh, the the hunting industry. So the Department of the Interior 2011 Congressional Budget Request, which includes the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Budget, is a fascinating 500-plus page document outlining all the appropriations, expenditures, and obligations of the Department and the Fish and Wildlife Service and runs in the millions of dollars. Here you find out just what our environmental costs are in terms of the environmental budget, which is also set by the administration and by Congress with guidelines through the Endangered Species Act and the other Fish and Wildlife Service Acts. Add in the estimated contributions that came in from 2011 from public and private, that was about $4 million and is estimated about $5 million for 2013. That's our money, folks, either taxes or your donations to some NGOs, your visits to the national parks, refuges and reserves, your hunting and fishing licenses, and your national park fees that help run the service and its combined acts, including the Endangered Species Act to boots on the ground service personnel. It is a convoluted bureaucracy. They may well get weighed down by trying to keep up with the ever-increasing complexities, ramifications, consequences and quirks of the natural world combined with an ever-increasing human population expansion, exponential expansion, and the associated impacts of us that we know of, let alone our current and exponentially expanding footprint in the near future. In May 10 of 2011, the Interior Department and the Obama administration struck a deal to cut clear the backlog on endangered species listings by clearing a decades-long backlog of petitions for the endangered species list, agreeing to decide within six years whether 251 species deserve federal protection. The settlement between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Wild Earth Guardians, a nonprofit organization, is a partial truce in the long-running battle between left-leaning environmental groups and Fish and Wildlife Service officials, which is also uh, responsible for the Wildlife Services arm, which is our quote-unquote problem animal control and uh, operates on public lands, private lands, and ranching lands to... Uh, remove problem predators such as coyotes, foxes, wolves, and mountain lions. So um, we're spending money to create what is endangered, to list and define what 
species are worthy of federal protection, while we're also spending equal amounts of money in extirpating these animals, as such as we did with the wolves in the 1920s and 60s to bringing them back in the 1970s. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service officials who say they lack the resources to add all the plants and animals that deserve protection to the federal endangered species list could pave the way for an avalanche of new listings under the Endangered Species Act, though it also limits the number of species that the wildlife group, Wild Earth Guardians, can petition to list. In recent years, the Fish and Wildlife Service has been inundated with lengthy petitions for listings from groups concerned that climate change, pollution, and other forces that destroy habitats are moving more and more species to the brink of extinction. In fiscal 2010, the Fish and Wildlife Service spent so much of its $21 million budget, listing budget, on litigation and responding petitions that it had almost no money to devote to placing new species under federal protection. That's according to the agency officials. So that's quite a quandary and quite a conundrum. It is a convoluted uh, set of um, circumstances that we have to deal with. At the, mo- at the moment, 1,374 U.S. species are listed under the ESA. Once a plant or animal is listed as threatened or endangered with extinction, federal officials must des- designate critical habitat for it. Think the spotted owl, which sometimes leads to clashes with local landowners and developers. This process also requires any federal action, such as funding highway construction that could affect a listed species also undergo a review by Fish and Wildlife Service officials. The Fish and Wildlife Service is also facing 20 court cases involving its handling of 320 species. So as you can see, it's clear either way that the status quo is unacceptable, not only for the Fish and Wildlife Service, but for the imperiled species, for our tax dollars, for our federal funding, and for our Earth. It's not working anymore. Um, and we can certainly see that across Africa as we translate Western models of conservation to the, uh, the wildlife-rich areas across sub-Saharan Africa. Any one of the documents that I have just mentioned and quoted from here today are available online with keyword searches for U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the Department of the Interior, and Wildlife Funding. Take some time and learn about what your tax dollars and all the conservation noise is is about. We must stop thinking of nature as the other um, and begin considering that we are part of it, not separate from it. And what happens to nature will impact us, as we are seeing more and more over the past several years as scientists warn of more extremes in both climate shifts and extinctions. So we'll come back after the break here and uh, finish up with some interesting information and some uh, quotes from some other people and some other listed resources. So feel free to call in at one 472 5788 or email me at org. Check out our website at wildeyes.org. Join in our news and blog, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and join in some of the discussions. We'll be right back.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. So we've been get delving into some pretty deep information about the policies and politics behind environmental uh, restoration, conservation efforts, the Fish and Wildlife Service programs and the various acts that we have under our government um, set up to protect our environment and our species. The majority of the funds derived from these three federal aid programs that I mentioned earlier are used to support game wildlife. Game wildlife means that which is hunted. It's um, utilized uh, by people. It's, it does us some good. We can eat it um, and we can hunt it and through sport uh, stores and um, sometimes some proposed uh, additional taxes on sporting equipment and wildlife watching or non-consumptive utilization, uh, there's been some requests to add taxes for this that would go to support wildlife species and wildlife conservation. Because it's a difficult, um, naughty pie to understand where all this funding is coming from. There's the uh, federal aid appropriations. There's the private sector contributions, the uh, crossover partnerships and collaborations be- between private sector and government. And then there's the regulations. So when it comes down to your donations, your contributions, your passion for 
going out and hiking in uh, the national park or bird watching or even going on safari in Africa, where does your money go and how does it end up actually helping um, towards policy? So uh, it gets a bit convoluted. So that's what I've been hoping uh, by reading some and going through some of these documents and some of these laws and how it works is to help you understand so that you can take responsibility the next time you have an election or the next time you read the news or you're charting and surfing through the Internet when you hear um, some wildlife news, such as the first obituary ever printed in the New York Times of the death of a wolf. So um, it's our responsibility to stay on top of this, these things. I know it's a lot of information, um, and there's, it's in-depth, but we, we have time to just research some of this. Take a little time. I urge you to sincerely understand what's going on so that you can better not better understand and also better address any arguments that come up your way and um, or debates or um, discussions about wildlife conservation, whether it's your neighborhood and the local deer that are eating your trees and overrunning of rabbits and overrunning of prairie dogs or mountain lions that have maybe uh, taken your pets or African lions that take livestock. We have... um, there is a, a contentious wall between wildlife enthusiasts who uh, enjoy the non-consumptive utilization of wildlife and ranchers and livestock owners and herders who have to compete with wildlife. And uh, usually when we compete with wildlife and we're competing with predators, the predators lose. And these predators are critical to our um, trophic systems, those levels and systems throughout our ecosystem that create how the world works, that interconnected web of life. Um, so there's a variety of levels between federal programs under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which filter down into state programs, which f- filter down into uh, local programs in your city or your neighborhood and your uh, community. State-level wildlife funding mechanisms are highly varied. Typically, state wildlife agencies receive funding through some combination of the sale of hunting and fishing licenses, incomes tax checks, off-state general funds, state lotteries, state sales taxes, industry taxes, vehicle license plates, trust funds, matching grants from federal programs, foundations, nonprofit organizations and corporations. According to a 1995 survey of the state wildlife agencies, almost 50% of state-level funding is derived from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses. As with the federal aid programs described, this revenue source has historically caused state agencies to heavily focus on game species management and conservation. So where does that leave the non-consumptive utilization of wildlife, the wildlife watchers, the um, people who enjoy recreating in the national park and want to shoot with a camera and not a gun? That's what we call non-consumptive utilization. So that leads to a search for new revenue for wildlife conservation. Here in the, the U.S. and the West, we don't really have a forum for that 
as opposed to Africa, which does through the safari business, through the lodging business, and through all the uh, international aid organizations and the big conservation organizations I'm sure you're all familiar with, World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, African Wildlife Foundation, the International Fund for Animal Welfare, the Humane Society, the ASPCA. These all work toward wildlife conservation and also in terms of bringing awareness about the welfare of animals, which is also a highly contentious point. And uh, in Africa and places where you Utilization of animals is um, much more widely uh, spread than just the beef industry that we have here. We have a lot of luxury time we spend on our pets and disposable income to do so. But in developing worlds such as Africa, that is not the case. So uh, as we talked about last week with uh, my guests, um, Roger Dawson, uh, excuse me, Roger Perry and Jessica Dawson, in Africa and in wildlife-rich areas, people are used to living with the concept of conservation and living with wildlife on a daily basis. They have to. It's there. It's in their yard. It's in their face. We here have gotten a little disconnected from that. In our urban situation, we are um, not quite as familiar with living with wildlife. And when we do encounter it, it becomes a pest uh, or as vermin. And then we bring in the wildlife services to come and take care of the problem otherwise known as kill it. So uh, a while back, I'd read some figures of, of what our wildlife services is killing in terms of our, our predators and our mesocarnivores, which the mesocarnivores are the um, smaller animals like foxes, uh, coyotes, um, prairie dogs, those kinds of beings, badgers. And then we've got, you know, the bears, the wolves, and the mountain lions and that are the uh, megafauna. And then in Africa, the megafauna of the lions, the leopards, the cheetahs, the big cats, uh, the tigers, you name it, wherever we're going around the world, the polar bear. These are all facing crisis as we compete for the resources and we try to find funding for wildlife conservation that comes in outside the federal budgetary um, uh, chain of command, so to speak. While existing federal and state wildlife funding mechanisms provide significant revenue for wildlife conservation activities, it's become increasingly clear that additional funding is required to prevent further species decline. Anybody who thinks that that is not the case and has been aware of the news today, climate shifts, and thinks that we do not need to readjust our system is dreaming. Recent studies suggest that over 90% of our nation's wildlife receives inadequate funding for management and conservation. The shortfall for wildlife diversity is particularly large. In a 1998 survey of state wildlife agencies, the International Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies found that funding for wildlife diversity totaled just $134 million in 1998, far short of the estimated of $1 billion 
needed for adequate management. In 1999, in a failed attempt to address the shortfall, a bipartisan coalition of U.S. legislators introduced the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, which was intended to increase federal funding for wildlife conservation. More recently, focus has shifted to creating new mechanisms for state-level wildlife funding through the State Wildlife Grants Program. So, in essence, it gets, just gets kept getting shifted. So we had Obama who made a deal with the Department of Interior to get rid of this backlog with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Uh, we had Congress making deals to um, not increase the funding and cut back the funding. And I tell you, every time Congress meets... And, uh, the budgetary, uh, the Department of Interior budgetary goes meeting all my friends in the, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the National Forest Service, they're on tenterhooks waiting to see if they'll have a job tomorrow. And this, uh, we ran into this in the middle of the, uh, one of the Mexican wolf recovery programs. Uh, we were doing condition taste aversion, uh, treatment on the Mexican wolf project down, uh, for reintroduction into New Mexico. And right in the middle of this was the uh, budgetary uh, congressional legislation meetings and uh, here's people who are totally dedicated to um, having raised and worked with the Mexican wolf recovery program and also California gray wolves and here with it the stroke of a pen it could all be lost millions of dollars years of work tons of data and research people's lives livelihoods and the animals, all gone with the stroke of a pen. So what we need to remember in terms of, in the end, it's us. It's every one of us who can shape our policy. But to do so, we must pay attention to the policy and what our species are telling us. Look around us. What is Earth saying? Uh, if we're listening to the news and climate change scientists, climate is not static. It always goes through cycles. But in the last 50 years, we humans have created a far greater impact on not only the climate, but on our resources and the availability of these resources. With our industrialized processes, our centralized food service processes, we're seeing increase in disease, we're seeing increase of spread of bacteria, and with the globalization and easy transport that we have across the world, it is so much easier to transport disease um, and foreign flora and fauna from one place to another. Uh, that's what our U.S. Customs and Lacey Act and Fish and Wildlife Permits are all about, so that when you go to Africa and you buy some of those trinkets and you put them in your suitcase, you think about what is it you're bringing back to the U.S. that might not have been here before. Or when you've walked through the National Park and uh, take those hiking boots to Africa without necessarily washing the soles of those shoes, what... Um, uh, species and insects and seeds and biota are you bringing to Africa that was not there before? Let's take that to an even larger scale. Uh, planes taking off and landing uh, from one international place to another to the dirt airstrips, the um, spread of the weedy species throughout our planet, those which can survive anywhere and do best where uh, human uh, disturbance has taken place or any kind of developmental disturbance has taken place, 
uh, are taking over and uh, sort of pushing out the, the the indigenous and endemic species because they have to compete. The weedy species can grow anywhere. In fact, they sort of steal from the endemic species, so it pushes them out. This happened uh, several years ago in the Ngorongoro Crater in Tanzania. A weedy species of weed got brought in through tires, um, seeds, and started... Uh, overgrowing the entire crater. It took them three to four years to figure out a policy of what to do. Uh, it was forcing um, the lions uh, to lose their prey. Um, as this thick, weedy bush became so thick, many of the prey species would go in there and hide, and the lions couldn't get in there. Finally, in the end, they did do a burning project to burn this weedy species, and uh, as far as I'm aware to date, it has been somewhat successful, and the crater's natural flora is coming back. But these are processes that take years, not only years that to slowly happen and change it for the worse, but it takes years to bring it back. And what happens to the species who depend on those habitats in the meantime? So we need to remember that we are part of this ecosystem, part of the World Wide Web, not only um, in terms of technology, but in terms of environment. And we have to stop thinking of nature as something other than us and begin considering that we are part of it. And what happens to nature will impact us, as we are seeing more and more over the past several years, as scientists warn of more extremes in both climate shifts and extinctions. As we look to the future of our global conservation efforts and policies and politics that guide them, I would like to paraphrase from the final interview of the Bill Moyers Journal on PBS with author, philosopher, and generally great human being, Barry Lopez. And I'm quoting here, um, paraphrasing and quoting. In trusting this process, and by that I'm interjecting here everything I've discussed today. These processes um, from our department, uh, from our governmental setups. Entrusting these processes, having faith in my colleagues and humanity, then I am full of hope that the person next to me, above me, below me, or next in line, are going to do their bit. That's what makes life work. That's what makes conservation work. And when we trust or even loosely touch one another, that is what renews our faith and our hope. So it is up to each of us to do our bit, to build the net, the web, that renews the world and renews us with it. It doesn't take a very large group of people to do this. A circle of friends, a community, a neighborhood, a state, a a country. It grows, it connects, and the more we each connect to each other, it's a groundswell of, of a movement to raise awareness about conservation efforts and what needs to be done. We can no longer wait for, quote, unquote, they to do it or them to do it. It is we. It is us. We are all responsible and we can all play a part in how we decide to evolve, not only as human beings, but evolve as species and uh, what what we choose to have on our planet. We end up driving uh, and deciding 
basically in the guise of one species how the rest of the world is going to function. And do we humans really have that right? I think we have the responsibility to um, adjust our thinking to include nature as a part of us and us as a part of nature so that we are uh, a much more holistic society and a globalization. That, to me, is the enlightenment and the involvement and the evolution of who we can be. And that can happen in the blink of an eye, in that clap of a hand, in a second. We can decide what and who we want to be and how we're going to be for the future, not just tomorrow, but the generations to come so that they and our children's children's children do have a world that is full of diversity, a wild world full of wonder and awesome, uh, bring to your knees beauty that uh, has the right to exist, not only because it was created and however you want to think about the creator, it was created, it's here, it has the right to exist just as we do. So I hope today you'll go out and touch your wild world and become a part of our wild world and join in on our discussions. Uh, you can uh, join in on our news and blog at wildeyes.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iRadio blog, and uh, LinkedIn discussions. And if you have a, a guest or a concept you would like to discuss, and uh, or a colleague or someone you know that is having uh, an impact on our wild world for the good, please bring it to my attention. You can email me at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. And I look forward to hearing from you, and we'll be back next week. Thank you, and enjoy our wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. I'm Dr. Sam Nussbaum with WellPoint. We proudly support the March of Dimes work in reducing premature birth. Almost half a million babies are born too soon in the United States. We're helping the March of Dimes fund cutting-edge research and life-saving programs. These programs, such as Centering Pregnancy, help moms in our communities have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Please join us during Prematurity Awareness Month in working together for stronger, healthier babies. Visit MarchofDimes.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.